One of my favorite things uh, to do at the beach is to get up early enough to watch the sunrise. Any of you with me on that? Love to do that. Yeah, some of you are fishing. I'm not looking at sun, I'm fishing. Yep. You know, I, whenever I've done this, it always strikes me that the sunrise happens so slowly and yet so quickly all at the same time. You know, for, for an entire night, right, hour upon hour, it's just darkness. If you're standing out there, it's all you see is, is darkness. The moon's bright, the stars are shining, but, but then the blackness starts to fade into a pale gray, right? It just gets a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, and, and clouds and waves that were unseen during the night start to come into focus. And then that first tint of yellow appears, a tinge of brightness reflecting on the, the bottom of the clouds and, and on the surface of the water. And streaks of red and orange and, and purple start to emerge as, as the darkness, the, the blackest night, just begins to recede further and further behind me to the west. Stars disappear, the moon is barely visible, and then my favorite part happens. The very first ray of gold pierces that horizon. It's my favorite part. And then, and then the sun itself, it's like it pokes its head over that, that line where the water meets the sky. And the whole shoreline is flooded with light. Everything is, is still there, all the sand, the waves, the boardwalks, the houses. But they look completely different in the light than they did in the dark. And for a minute or so, I can keep my eyes on the sun, but, but once that half circle becomes a full circle, the brilliance is blinding, and I'm, I'm forced to turn away. Red, orange, and purple dissolve in that, that stream of yellow and white, and a new day is dawned. It's my favorite part. Isaiah 9 verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Why? 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you realize, friend, that's, that's exactly what happened on that first Easter morning. That the dark night of of sin and death and suffering that, that began to fade with the birth of Christ was shattered with a ray of glorious light when Jesus walked out of that tomb. 
raised to life by the Father and the power of of the Spirit. And in that moment, a a new day dawned, a, a decisive, irreversible transition in redemptive history went down. As the Apostle John declares in in John 1.5, speaking of the the person and work of Christ, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I I love the words of of a resurrection hymn that we sing sometimes. See what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem, folded the grave clothes, tomb filled with light, as the angels announce, Christ is risen. That the dawn of redemption in Christ leaves nothing, absolutely nothing, in our dark world untouched. It, it takes things that were, that were present before, that have always been present as far as we know, and it casts them in a whole new light. It's what the, the dawn of redemption in Christ does. And nowhere is that more true. Nowhere is that transformation of what was there before but is now totally different, more clear than in the nature and necessity of the way we love one another. That's what John's talking about here. In in chapter 1, he reminded us that God is light. That means in him there's no darkness at all, no, no sin, no evil, no wickedness. And if you want to have fellowship with him, if you, if you want to enjoy reconciled relationship with the creator who made you to know him, then you know what you have to do? You have to walk in the light too. You have to obey God's commands. 1 John 2, 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If, if you want your assurance of salvation, If you want to know if your faith is authentic and and genuine, then you have to pass the test of obedience. You have to walk as Jesus walked, keeping the commandments of God. And in 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11, what we just read, John follows Jesus' lead in recognizing one particular commandment that stands at the headwaters of all the others. It's the command to love. And if you're a Christian, that command is especially to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So John comes back to this this test. Do you love your brothers? Over and over and over again. But, But he introduces it here by helping us understand how the dawn of redemption in Christ transforms the nature of love and the necessity of love. Okay, that's the big idea in these verses. The dawn of redemption in Christ transforms the nature of love and the necessity of love. And John helps us understand how that happens by making several points. The command to love is old. The command to love is new. And the command to love separates light from darkness. Let's begin with point one. The command to love is old. Look at verse 7. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Notice, church, that he does not explicitly tell us up front what the commandment is. That's intentional on John's part, okay? We we know from verses 9 and 10 
that the specific commandment John has in mind in verse 7 is the command to love your brother. But I would argue that if he had said the commandment to love your brother is an old commandment, we would be tempted to think, well, of course it is. I've heard that sermon a thousand times. We're supposed to love each other. Can we please move on to something that I do not already know, preacher man? John doesn't want us to move like that. He doesn't want us to move quickly. We we need to slow down and understand what's going on here. He forces us to think because he wants us to understand the significance of the command to love in the context of the entire storyline of the Bible. So here's the question we need to answer, okay? Under this first point, the command to love is old. In what sense pretty obvious, is the command to love old? How is it old? Well, first, it's old in the sense that God required as much from the very beginning of his relationship with his people, starting in the Old Testament, and flowing from the command to love the Lord himself. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with with all your heart and with all your soul and with with all your might. But we know that that vertical command to love the Lord always expresses itself in what? A horizontal command to love one another. So God says in Leviticus 19 verse 17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think we need to slow down here because these words, loving your neighbor, golden rule, it just gets really familiar and we go into autopilot, okay? When God commanded Israel to love your neighbor as yourself, he was not saying to them, guys, I want you to be nice to people. I want you to wave to your neighbor before you pull into your garage and shut the door. I want you to give some money to the homeless people on the street. And I really want you to just try, I mean, could you please try not to yell at your kids so much? That's what we tend to hear as Americans, right? When when, when somebody starts talking about, well, you're supposed to love one another. And the Bible certainly includes being a friendly person, but it also means a whole lot more. A whole lot more. It means loving your neighbors yourself, honoring and submitting to the people God places in authority over us, starting with your parents. It means guarding and protecting every human life as an image bearer of God. It means expressing our, our sexuality in, in ways that are pleasing to God and honoring the covenant of marriage. It, it means treating other people's property with respect. It means speaking the truth to all people in all situations, even when it hurts. It means being content with what the Lord has provided for you, not demanding or taking from others what the Lord has yet to provide, trusting that he knows what is best. And he'll never withhold a relationship or a material provision that he knows would be good for you. And by the way, that is just the second half of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Okay, the the whole Bible 
The whole Bible, Old and New Testament, are filled with instructions and examples of specifically what the command to love looks like in action. It doesn't just mean treating people the way we want to be treated or treating other people the way they want to be treated. The command to love our neighbor in Scripture means treating other people the way God tells us to treat them. That's different. What loving your brother in a biblical sense means doing what is hard for you and them. And sometimes comes at great personal cost. That's always been God's definition of love. So the command to love is old in the sense that it stretches all the way back to the very beginning of the Old Testament. Second, the command to love is old, two senses here, in the sense that it was part of the word that the recipients of John's letter had heard. Notice he says that. End of verse 7, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. It was part of the word they'd heard from John from the very beginning of their Christian experience. You know, he was their spiritual father in the faith. And, and from the very beginning of their walk with Christ, John had instructed them to love one another as an expression of, of their love for God and as the overflow of God's love for them in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So, so when John tells us in verses 9 and 10 to love our brother, he's not giving us a new commandment, but an old commandment. But at the same time, he says in verse 8, look there with me, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. In other words, there's, there's a sense in which it's old and a sense in which it's new. He's not contradicting himself. A contradiction would be saying, the com- what I'm writing to you is an old commandment. What I'm writing to you is not an old commandment. That would be a contradiction. He doesn't say that. He says what I'm writing to you is an old commandment and, in another sense, what I'm writing to you is a new commandment. That's our second point. The command to love is new. The command to love is old. The command to love is, is new. So here's where we have to understand, church, the connection between the beginning of verse 8 and the end of verse 8. So slow down and look at that with me if you have a Bible. Let's start with the beginning. What does John say? At the same time, it is a new commandment. It's a command to love one another. A new commandment that I'm writing to you, which begs the obvious question, John, in what sense is it new? Why is it new? We've seen why it's old. Why is it new? Now look at the end of verse 8. It's new this commandment to love one another, because, reason, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That phrase, the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining, is the most important phrase in this entire text. Because John's doing what I alluded to earlier. He's he's locating the command to love in the context of the entire storyline of the Bible. Of, of everything God's doing from Genesis to, to Revelation. And it's precisely at this point that we see how the dawn of redemption in Christ transforms the nature of love and the necessity of love. Okay, so the Bible divides human history, if you're not familiar with this, into, into two ages. So, so the old age, sometimes called the present age, and then you've got the new age, or sometimes called the age to come. So, so the old age is human existence under the, under the dominion of sin and Satan. It's, it's the kingdom we're born into, the kingdom of this world. And, and to live in the old age is to live 
enslaved to the passions and desires of our flesh. We're not, we're not living for God. We're living for ourselves. But the new age is, is human life under the redemptive rule of God, where sin and suffering and death are no more. Where Jesus is our our supreme desire, where where God is our greatest treasure and and we're free to live for him. And that's the kingdom that God brings us into through repentance of sin and faith in Christ. He brings us into that kingdom, that new age. And the resurrection of Jesus is the dawn of that age. It's what I alluded to earlier where where the full sun hasn't come up yet, but that first ray of light has pierced the horizon. It's the moment we know that the power of sin and death have been broken. It's it's the moment we know that, that all our sin has been forgiven because of Jesus. That, that his sacrifice was sufficient. And from that point forward, the, the light of the kingdom of God began pushing back the darkness of this kingdom in the world as, as one by one men and women were saved and added to the kingdom of God. The resurrection assures us, as Doug said earlier, that, that sin and death, friend, they're not going to have the final word. God's going to win. And if you're in Christ, you're going to win too. Praise God for that. But the battle's not over, right? Battle's not over. We're we're citizens of the kingdom of God, yet we still experience suffering and sin and, and death as we live in this fallen world. Because there's a sense in which the kingdom of God, this this new age of life under God's redemptive rule, is what? It's both already and not yet. Okay, notice notice John doesn't say at the end of verse 8 that the darkness is gone. He says the darkness is passing away. Even now as I speak, and the true light, the light of God's saving power in Christ is already shining. We we were living, as it were, at the transition point, the dawn of the new age and the end of the old age. And and I love that that word picture, that the good news of the gospel is just like that first ray of light that pierces the horizon and and heralds a, a new day. So as Christians, we experience, as it were, a true glimmer, a true taste of life in the new age, life as it was meant to be. Why do I say that? Well, because we're able to put off sin, right? If you're in Christ, you're, you're able to put on holiness. We know the joy of fellowship with God. We grow in our love for Jesus. We, we hopefully are growing in our love for one another. As, as Paul says, we've been delivered out of this present evil age, Galatians 1.4, and, and we've tasted of the powers of the age to come, Hebrews 6.5. But we're still waiting. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and judge the world and and make all things new. We're waiting for the dawn to give way for the full light of day. When we're perfectly holy as he's holy. When when sin and suffering and death are no more. And I, I love how Paul captures this tension of already not yet. In Romans 13 verse 11. 
for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's true. The night is far gone, not completely gone, but far gone, and the day is at hand. That's that's the story John is locating this command to love one another in. That's the context. So now here's the key question. How does the fact that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining make the commandment to love one another something new? In other words, why can John say it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining? How does that fact, that story, make the command to love new? Look at the middle of verse 8. Look at the middle. The answer is here. There's a sense in which because of the gospel, the dawn of the new age, the command to love is new in him or in Christ. And there's another sense, two senses here, in which because of the gospel, the dawn of the new age, the command to love is new in you or in us. How is it new? Because of this story, this redemptive work of God from beginning to end. Well, it's new in two senses. In Christ, in him, and in you. Okay, so let's consider how this command to love is new in him, in Christ. Okay, and here's where the Gospels are so helpful. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus tells us here that, that the command to love one another, it summarizes all the commands that have come before. Listen to what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just an Old Testament thing. On these two commandments depend all the law And the prophets. So so we know that the command to love functions for John in 1 John chapter 2 as as a summary of all the other commands, the one another's in scripture. Because John, notice this, he switches from talking about commandments plural in chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 to talking about the commandment singular in chapter 2 verses 7 through 11. He's using this command to, one and, to love one another as a summation, as the, the summary of all the other commands. So this command to, to love is new in Christ in the sense that Jesus himself establishes it as the summary of all the other one another commands in the kingdom of God. Okay, but, but the command to love is also new in Christ. Please hear this. In the sense that by expressing God's love for us in a radically new way, Jesus established through his life, death, and resurrection an entirely new standard of love. Okay? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know in what context Jesus said that? He was washing his disciples' feet. But that wasn't the ultimate demonstration. 
of his love for us. That was amazing. The maker of the universe who created those feet was washing them. But that wasn't the ultimate demonstration. The ultimate demonstration is Romans 5.8. For God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His sacrificial death, church, established a radically new standard for our love for one another. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment. He couldn't make this more clear. That you love one another, how? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So what's the old commandment? What's the old commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the new commandment? Love one another as God in Christ has loved you. It doesn't undo the old. It simply raises it to to an entirely new level where, where loving our neighbor means loving even our enemies the way Jesus did. Loving us. That's that's the most significant way the command to love is, is new in Jesus. Okay, his, his life, death, and resurrection was a radically new expression of the love of God. And in so doing, he established a radically new standard for our love for one another. But notice, it's not just new in him. It's also new in us. Everything I've just shared is, why is the command to love new in him, in Christ? But, but how is it also new in, in us, in us who are following him? Well, here we have really good news. It's new in us in the sense that a radically new power to love dwells in you, Christian. It's called the Holy Spirit of the living God. And it's the spirit of him, Paul says in Romans 8, 11, who raised Jesus from the dead. That dwells in you right now. And that means, Ephesians 1, 19, that the same immeasurably great power that raised Christ from the dead is what? At work in you right now. Enabling you to love your, your brothers and sisters. Listen, before Jesus Christ rose from the grave, none of the people of God could say that. None of the people of God had God himself dwelling in them, empowering them to love other people the way he had loved us. They could never say that. They never had that kind of power. And there's been a lot of talk in the news this week of this mother of all bombs (laughs) that we dropped in Afghanistan. If you're not familiar with it, it was the most powerful non-nuclear bomb ever deployed in modern warfare. And the military impact was pretty stunning. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you have the God of all resurrection power living in you. And the spiritual impact is far more stunning. Because it's not a power to kill and destroy. It's a power to heal and renew and redeem and transform. So let there be on this Easter Sunday loud praise to God for pouring out on us the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the best gift the risen Christ could ever give us. And take comfort in in knowing this morning that wherever you struggle the most to love the people around you, guess what? That is the very place in your life where the Spirit of God inside of you, Christian, is most eager and willing and able and ready to help you do that. That's the promise. The command to love isn't just an old commandment. It's new. It's new in him and it's new in us. Because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. The dawn of redemption in Christ is is transforming the the nature of love. But it's also transforming the necessity of love. And here's where we get to John's final point. Namely, verses 9 and 10 and 11, that the command to love separates the light from the darkness. Okay, so look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. The choice between those two options could not be more stark. Okay, either you are loving your brother or you are hating your brother. There is not a giant, comfortable, neutral middle ground. And we like to think that way. We try to create that space, as it were. We, we say to ourselves, well, I'm not actively hating my spouse, my kids, my, my coworkers, or I came really close with that annoying person in my community group. <laughs> I just don't like them very much. I'm not really hating them. I just don't like them very much. So so I'm going to keep a cool distance and and not really reach out or or press into relationship because the Lord knows that that if I do, I'll probably figure out or learn some way that they need help and then I'll feel convicted that I have to love them. So I'll just maintain this distance so I don't get convicted so I never have to love them. I'll just stay over in this corner of the house or the office or the bedroom or the classroom and leave well enough alone. If you want to be loved, we could start by you loving me. We do that. We do that. Friends, please hear this. Hating someone, especially a brother or sister in Christ, isn't just a matter of actively seeking to harm them. Okay? We hate our brother whenever we fail to do the good that God commands us to do to them. There's no neutral ground there. Hatred isn't just a sin of commission. More often than not, it's a sin of of omission of failing to lay down our lives the way Jesus laid down his life for us. So John Charles, a really sobering line in the sand here. You can't claim to follow Jesus if you're not actively practicing radical, sacrificial love for the people around you. Why? Because the command to love is new in Jesus. And since being a Christian means abiding in the light, abiding in Christ, you're not abiding in Christ or abiding in the light if you're not loving people the way Jesus did. The way he loved us. 
which means passing this, this relational test. Do you, do you love the brothers? It's not optional. The command to love genuinely separates the light from the darkness. Passing the test is required. Why? Because nothing is a better indicator of whether your heart has been genuinely transformed by the love of God in Christ than whether or not you are loving other people. Nothing's a better indicator of that, starting with how you love or don't love your enemies, the people who are out to hurt you or demean you or, or belittle you or oppress you. And on this point, brothers and sisters, this command to love, I, I'm compelled, given it separates the light from the darkness, to both commend you and exhort you. I want to commend you first because as I look around this church, I see a multitude of examples of ways that you're loving one another. I really do. I really do. I see the triumph of Jesus' resurrection shining in the way you speak, email, and text words of truth that help the people around you fight unbelief and cling to faith in Christ. I see the triumph of Jesus' resurrection shining in the way you you make meals and and fix cars and pay bills and wash clothes and, and open up your home to people who need a place to live. I see the triumph of Jesus' resurrection shining in the way you share the gospel with people that have never heard of it or understood it. And I I see the triumph of Jesus' resurrection shining in the way that you help us through your example to understand what it means to trust God when life really hurts. I, I see the triumph of Jesus' resurrection shining in this church in those ways. And I'm so thankful for the evidences of your love for one another. You are to be commended, Kingsway. Feel God's pleasure for the way that you do this. The way you, way you live out the dawn of redemption in Christ and the way you, you love one another. But at the same time, I'm compelled to exhort you. Namely, to do it more and more. To do it more and more. You know, the, the expressions of love I just mentioned, little side note here, I think their strengths in this church because they were strengths in the people who founded this church over 25 years ago, many of whom are still here today, and to whom, as a young pastor, I am profoundly indebted. But the expressions of love I just mentioned and that God commands us to practice here are not going to remain strengths in this church unless those of us who are younger and those of you who are newer decide, Lord, I'm going to love my brother the way you've loved me. If you don't take up that baton, I'm convinced that 10, 15 years from now, the people that come in here will no longer be saying, I'm just amazed at the way you love each other. They say that to me all the time. Praise God for that. But the only way that's going to continue is if we keep our eyes on Jesus, on this command to love, recognize that it's old, recognize that in particular it's new, and lean hard on the power of the Holy Spirit to live in light of the resurrection and not stop loving one another the way Christ has loved us. I love how I, Howard Marshall, says it. It's not just the absence of sin 
which characterizes the true Christian. Hear that. It's not just the absence of sin which characterizes the true Christian. It's also the positive presence of love. Whether or not you love your brother is the single best indicator of whether you are walking in the light or walking in darkness. And take care, friend, that you don't take that test too quickly. Give yourself a pat on the back. Why? Look at verse 11. Because if you're walking in the darkness and right now you are not loving your brother, you are hating your brother, then by definition, you are walking blind. Verse 11. Whoever hates his brother, what? Walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So so take time this week to ask a Christian who knows you well. When you look at the pattern of my life, do you see a pattern of me loving other people the way God has sacrificially loved us in Christ? And listen to their answer. Genuinely listen and let God speak to you. I want to close with this warning. Following Jesus is not about trying really, really hard to love people. A lot of people think that's what Christians are. They're just people that are trying really, really hard to love other people instead of hating them, okay? That's not where following Jesus starts. Following Jesus starts with repenting of your lovelessness and trusting Jesus to forgive you for all the ways that you've hated people instead of loving them. Only when that experience is true of you, when you've experienced God's love for you in Christ, that power that raised Christ from the dead is dwelling in you, only when that's your experience can you genuinely love the people around you, not to earn God's love or favor, but because you have been freely given God's love and favor in Christ. Remember that, friends. Remember that. And and on this Easter Sunday, take heart that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead Is it working you, enabling you to love? The the dawn of redemption in Christ, that Easter morning, transforms the nature of love and the necessity of love. That's a sobering warning to sinners and a tremendous encouragement to the saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to heed your word and live accordingly. I thank you for the dawn of a new age and the resurrection of Christ. I thank you for the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is living in us. I pray that as a local church, that power would be seen for decades to come in the way that we love one another, as you have loved us. Lord, guard us from assuming that we are doing the most important things, right or well. And where you convict us, turn our eyes back to Christ and that open tomb, where you declare power over all lovelessness and all hatred and all failure to love through the way you loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.